0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Today we're talking with Hank Glassman, who's written a new book called The Face of Jizo, Image and Cult in Medieval Japanese Buddhism. The book looks at the iconography, the art, the folktales, and the rituals surrounding the Bodhisattva Jizo in Japan. Um, Jizo was a a rather ubiquitous figure in Japanese religiosity, and uh, over the centuries he's come to be associated with with death, with the hell realms, with women, children, and childbirth, um, as well as being sort of the the uh, Buddhist saint of uh, travelers and protector of travelers. Um, Some of our listeners no doubt know of a a very uh, common ritual in Japan nowadays uh, called the Mizuko Kuyo, which is a ritual uh, specifically for aborted or stillborn fetuses. Um, And Jizo plays a very important role in uh, in that ritual. Um, And so Professor Glassman's book really explores how it is that Jizo became this central figure that he is in Japanese Buddhism. Um, his book is, uh, is quite simply a joy to read. There are so many uh, really great stories surrounding uh, Jizo, his past lives, um, and, and also stories about certain images and certain uh, icons or, or, or statues of Jizo. Um, Jizo is a, a very literally moving figure who um, uh, moves about Japan uh, quite, uh, quite a lot, and uh, this book is extremely well-written and is accessible and a joy to read. And so without further ado, let's get to the interview. So today we're talking with Professor Hank Glassman, who has written a new book called *The Face of Jizo: Image and Cult in Medieval Japanese Buddhism*. Hi, Hank. How are you doing today? Good, good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for talking to us. Um, I, uh, I I really uh, enjoyed this book. Um, Japanese Buddhism is not my area of specialty, but I certainly have a, an affinity for Japanese Buddhism and. Um, uh, in full disclosure, many years ago, I took a couple classes from uh, Hank when he was here in California. Um, and, uh, I can honestly say those classes were some of the highlights of my graduate education. Um, and this book was actually sort of a fun, uh, Reminiscence of the kinds of uh, questions and issues that we discussed in those seminars, um, so it was a pleasure to read. Um, but before we get into the book itself, um, welcome again to the show, and um, we always like to start off with a couple quick questions about um, just who who you are, Hank, <laughs> your, your background, and how you came to uh, study Buddhism and, and Japanese religion.
1: Yeah, um well, you know, I, I have different versions of this I, I, I tell, but um I I was raised in Houston, Texas uh in the nineteen sixties and seventies, uh in a secular uh, Reformed Jewish family. Um what felt a draw to religion, was interested in religion, uh and um uh, ultimately found the the faith that I was in at the time unfulfilling uh, and didn 't think much about it uh, after that in in college, I began to study Japanese language uh, through a couple of uh, coincidences and and uh, 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 sort of happenstances and I enjoyed that very much and after college uh, or sort of during college too during a summer, I ended up in Japan quite a few times and I had an interest in buddhism but but I had a kind of a growing affinity. Uh, and, uh, eventually, uh, I saw that this might be something that I might pursue in graduate studies, uh, and, uh, then I've, I've sort of ended up where I am now, uh, which is teaching at Haverford College, which is a small, uh, liberal arts college with Quaker roots in suburban Philadelphia, uh, uh, which is along with Bryn Mawr College. It's a, a women's college also in the deep history, uh, also a Quaker institution. So that's a little bit about who I am, how I got here.
0: Great. Um, and uh, 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 what, what was the what was the connection with Japan, and specifically, I guess, why this interest in Jizo, and why the you know sort of led you to uh, to come to write this book?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I actually um, had visited Japan with my parents very briefly, uh, maybe in fifth grade or something like that. Probably 1975. Around then. Uh, and and uh, it was a very brief visit uh less than less than a week I'm sure uh but the uh aesthetic uh qualities of the country the built environment uh both traditional and modern uh, the shoji the tatami uh the deep bath the uh Gengkang, uh gardens uh ultra modern buildings uh ultraman uh, on the top roof of one department store <laughs> And the shock to realize that Ultraman was Japanese. I'm not sure what I thought, uh, where I thought he was from. But anyway, so, so an interest in Japan that, that was sort of latent and largely of an, uh, I guess I would say an aesthetic uh, nature, an aesthetic draw to the country, uh, and, uh, uh, to a lot of things about Japan. Um, and, uh, Right. What was the other question? Uh, d- draw to Japan. And, and-, and this
0: particular subject of Jizo and this uh, the, Jizo, the, the, yes. of the book itself. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, when I was in Japan uh, for the first time as an adult uh, during some summer during college, I started noticing Jizo images. And uh, I had taken a couple of courses, uh, excellent courses, with uh, uh, Professor Paul Watt at Columbia, who uh, uh, is now... Uh, moved on to a different post from uh, DePaul University, where he taught for a long time. Um, uh, excellent courses on Japanese Buddhism, but we had never heard of this deity, Jizo. So I thought, oh, that's odd that we wouldn't have heard of, of this. Uh, and and I saw uh, one, you know, with the bibs and the hat, and a, a, a kind of a wooden uh, shrine on a street corner, and I said, okay, there's one. Saw another one, took a photograph, another photograph, uh, one sort of with a whole Whole board through it in a chain and and chained to a Coke machine. And it was like okay, take a picture of that one. And I just take taking pictures of more more of them. Uh, some modern kind of cutesy Mizuko ones. Not really sure what they were. Uh, I guess 20, 19 or twenty years old at this point. Um, and then I went with my friend uh, who I was traveling with, uh, Max Mormon, uh, you might know, um, to Koyasan. And when I got off the What's it called? Cable car there, uh, and and we walked up to the to the graveyard. Um, I saw so many Jizo images that I, I I had said I was going to take pictures of all the Jizo images I saw, <laughs> uh, all the Jizo statues I saw. When we got to Koyasan, right? This is before digital photography, of course. Right? It's nineteen eighty-five or six, I guess four or five, five, yeah, 80, 1985. So it's before digital photography. So even if I could have bought the film. Even with a digital camera, you couldn't really capture all the Jizo images at Koyasan, um, uh, of every different kind of form. So, so basically, when we were there, when we were at Koyasan, I said to myself, you know, this is really interesting the way that these graves are somehow broken fragments of graves are somehow being used again as, as deities in the crotches of these ancient trees. And this is really interesting and, 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 and speaks to me a lot, uh, Then when I went to eventually pursue graduate studies first in Japan and then the United States, I would tell, uh, senior Japanese scholars, um, they'd say, what are you going to work on? What are you working on? You know, a young grad student, I'd say, Jizo, cult of Jizo, and they would kind of laugh and and shake their heads. And I never (laughs) took me a long time to figure out what that meant. And eventually I realized that, that it was such, it's such an enormous topic. And such a broad topic and a varied topic, that that there's a sort of dismay of like, well, that's a that's an awfully broad answer (laughs) to put that. So so you know, really, what I uh, into graduate school, I realized I was not going to write my dissertation on Jizo. It was just too he uh, was just too deep and broad uh, and and massive a topic for with the skills I had uh, to try to write a book on. So I wrote the dissertation on a different topic. Uh, sort of related but still different topic. So, uh, it, it, it has taken me all this time, uh, from what is it, 85 to 2012, (laughs) to finally produce this. So I'm happy it's out. Um, and uh, right. So that's that was the interest in Jizo is that, that he was a deity I had never seen before um, in class and seemed so ubiquitous in Japan. Oh, and then one more thing I'll say about it is that that one thing I realized while I was in Japan was that Jizo was very much associated in contemporary Japan uh, at certain sites with uh, abortions and with stillborn and miscarried children and so on. People said to me, "Japan is the is the protector of, of uh, women, children, and travelers." And as I began to research Jizo over a, a couple of years, I I realized that in the Heian period there was no particular special association for the most part <laughs> between Jizo and women and certainly none between Jizo and children. Mm-hmm. And so and travelers was not really something that, that I saw in the texts either. Jizo was primarily a savior in the hells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my big question beginning my research was how and where and when and why did Jizo go from being uh, a savior in the hells to uh, first a protector of women in childbirth, and then later a, a protector of the infant dead, uh, and, and with that, travelers, too. So that, that's the question the book tries to answer,
0: I think. So to, to give a little bit of uh, background um, for those uh, of our listeners who might not know, um, Jizo is, of course, a bodhisattva, but um, if you could t- just sort of explain a little bit about Jizo in general. And I know that uh, you know being a protector in hell... Um, he's got a much different role in China. Um, you talk a little bit about that in the book um, that I think would be helpful just to sort of give people some understanding of how bodhisattvas um, in East Asia uh, function.
1: Yeah, thank so you, much. <clears throat> yeah, that's great. Um, Jizo is a bodhisattva, which means in a certain sense that he's a, di- a being destined to become a Buddha. But like a lot of bodhisattvas in East Asia, uh, he takes a vow, and this is something quite foreign to people uh, I know uh, in the Tibetan tradition, mm-hmm. uh, and this has become to my attention uh, again a few times recently, Um People who know Tibetan Buddhism often feel there must be some mistake uh, here in, in in the description of what's going on, and I just want to assure listeners that, that this is that what I'm saying is accurate. Uh, <laughs> that that it's it's possible that that one might feel that uh, East Asian Buddhism has it wrong, but but this is this is the way uh, 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 a Bodhisattva is looked at, and particularly in the case of Jizo, in a certain way, uh, Dizong in China, in a certain way, he is the um, quintessential. Uh, Bodhisattva, uh, that is, uh, what the gist of Ditong's vow, uh, says is that until all of the hells are empty, he will not attain Buddhahood. Okay. So what it means is that, uh, he's in it for the long haul, uh, that he will make sure that, uh, everyone else as it were uh, is saved before him that 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 he'll postpone his own enlightenment to remain in the world saving beings he's also called the achantaka bodhisattva or isendai no bosatsu uh, there's a kind of a being within Yogacara buddhism called the achantaka and the idea is this kind of a being just can't Get anything right, and constantly is falling into the hells again and again. No chance for redemption. So Jizo is often called the Achantika Bodhisattva because even though he's a high being and could gain Buddhahood at any time uh, if he so intended, uh, he instead chooses to 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 be born in the hells again and again. Um, Another way to look at Jizo, or another way Jizo has been described in, in the literature about him uh, is that he's a the master yogi um he rises uh every morning uh in the pre-dawn hours uh to enter into deep trance a deep samadhi and and uh manifest uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, avatar bodies to go out into the world and uh save and teach beings um so there's a lot of div- those are all very traditional uh, uh, ideas about Jizo. I would say from China, uh, Jizo is really a deity who who first uh, is developed in China during the um, probably around the uh, late seventh century, uh, and and becomes popular even later than that. So he he's quite late on the scene. He takes the form of a monk, which is different than most bodhisattvas. That is, most bodhisattvas have a elaborate hairdo and a headdress and jewelry uh jizo does have some jewelry uh usually um but uh, and in chinese depictions often uh the cloth uh headscarf of a traveler but his head is shaped like that of a monk uh, and he carries a monk staff and wears monk's robes so he's a different kind of bodhisattva in that way um in Chinese Buddhism uh, and in throughout East Asian Buddhism, Korea, Japan too, uh, he's seen as presiding over the six paths of rebirth—the kinds of different destinies that that the dead could be reborn into, um, of hungry ghosts and uh, the hell realms, uh, uh, animal realms, human realm, uh, the asura fighting demon realms, uh, uh, the heavenly realm. And I'm not sure if I said animals, but they're there too. Mm-hmm. Um, that he presides over the six realms and in this way also uh, is plays an important role in the hells uh, as a, a psychopomp or a leader of the soul through the afterworld, um, but also uh, as a an advocate for the dead with the ten kings. The ten kings are a, a tribunal who judge the dead in in hell in East Asia. This is a, a concept that develops in China uh, during the Song period primarily uh, from the 10th century on or so um uh, or really from earlier periods, but but in a fully formed way. Um but anyway, the 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 thing is that in Japan, uh Jizou becomes identified directly with the king of hell, mm-hmm. uh, Emma, uh, Emma or Yemla Wang in, in Chinese, uh this king Yama. And uh it's said uh, for instance in the in the very uh opening uh pages of uh uh, i'm sorry it's kind of a storytelling text that i'm reading today uh, on the the pictures of the six of the six realms which starts off with hell naturally enough um uh it says uh, uh emma uh emma looks fierce uh on the outside but his his heart is that of jizo and he's uh, a compassionate and and wise uh, uh counselor or something like that so so there's this idea that that jizo and emma are the same uh, in this case your 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 advocate, your lawyer, <laughs> judge, in fact, uh, who's, who's meeting out the, the both the decision and the punishment uh, are, in fact, the same. So you can rest assured that you'll be saved. So he's a very gentle savior, a very approachable savior. Uh, there's a common expression in uh, Japanese um, that, that, that the title is partially derived from. Um, upon seeing uh, someone, you know, you've, uh, uh, well, let's just, uh, let's say you're, 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 you're arrested on a misunderstanding. You're thrown in jail. You don't have your wallet. It's a case of mistaken identity. You can't show who you are. Your friend shows up at the jail and you say, oh my gosh, I feel as if I've seen the face of Jizo in hell, right? So, so glad that you were here. I'm you of all people. I'm so glad to see you, uh, Is, uh, people, uh, often, and maybe more so in the past, (laughs) say, uh, "Oh, oh, I've seen the, I've seen the face of Jizo in hell. You know, thank you so much for coming. Um, so there's this idea that he's quite approachable as a, as a human looking bodhisattva. And also there's a, uh, kind of a blurring effect, I guess I'll say, with actual monks throughout history. So, uh, because Jizo looks like a monk and monks look like Jizo, there's often this or that monk, uh, who said to actually be Jizo mm-hmm. or, uh, there's many legends in which, uh, someone has a conversation, uh, with a young monk or a small monk or dreams about a young monk or a small monk. Uh, and then later it's revealed that, that the person here was actually Jizo, um,
0: Hmm. so so uh one of the things i loved about this book was that um it's very it's filled with stories <laughs> um so uh in the first chapter for example there's all of these uh folktales you tell of examples of, of these of things that jizo has done or that uh actual jizo statues have done um, mm-hmm. which is just i think a, a really wonderful way to illustrate the um the, the the way he's understood within uh, Japanese Buddhist culture. Um, so can you give us an example of one of these uh, folktales that you use in the book to, to show the, uh, you know, specifically, I'm thinking about how Jizo is a very moving, uh, literally, he's a moving figure. He's, he's sort of right. active.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, thanks for that question. Yeah. Well, one example that has actually not much in the book, but, but was one thing that struck me about Jizo early on in my studies, um, is that, uh, Jizo is a stone image, right? I mean, these are, these are no matter how small they are, I guess the, 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 the small musical ones are different, but, but a Jizo image, it's a quite a large piece of stone. It's a heavy, solid thing. It's, it's not going anywhere. Um, and when I was in graduate school at, at University of Tsukuba, uh, working with the late uh, Miyata Noboru, uh, a, f- a fellow grad student, a folklorist from Korea, uh, said, oh, have you seen this book? Have you seen this book? And he handed me a book called Meg- Meguri no Folkroa, the, the folklore of a peregrination, let's say something like that, the folklore of wandering or, or making the rounds. And it was a book about... Uh, uh, a certain shinshu community uh, in Japan uh, that would uh, take a jizo uh, from village to village uh, fairly large image but small enough so that that people quite <laughs> aged ladies but fairly heavy you know maybe a hundred pound 150 pound kind of a jizo image uh, could could carried around from village to village and they would take turns the different villages caring for the image. And it's called the Mawadi Jizo or Meguri Jizo. Um, so I found this very interesting the idea that, that Jizo would move around. And and the folklorist uh, uh I'm sorry anthropologist who wrote the book, uh, Miyazaki Keizo too, um the the point of the book is the sort of dynamic nature of the Jizo cult in this case. But yeah, there are there are any number of stories, but but one that I, I like in particular um and this is in, appears in many collections, I think it's in Konjaku Monogatari uh, chapter 17, it's also in the Jizo Satsure Genki, the sort of standard miracle tales of Jizo uh, that change, you know, different editions over the years, but anyway, the story is that there's an old lady who lives in the capital of Kyoto, and <clears throat> she's a devotee of Jizo, and uh, her son is no good, and he he won't come help her Plant the seedlings, and the timing's very critical of putting the seedlings out into the rice paddies. She's been very good about getting these seedlings, planting the seed, sprouting the seedlings. She's ready to go. The the floods are the the, the fields are flooded. Uh, You know they're banked with mud. Everything's ready, but she's she's ill. She's an old woman, and she can't go plant these seedlings. Um, And her son is not is not coming to help her. So. She's in despair. She's worried if she can't get this harvest in, she won't have food to eat. So she prays to Jizo that, that somehow, uh, or, you know, someone come and help her out of this bind. And, 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 uh, when she rises in the morning, she, she looks out her door and she sees that all her seedlings are gone and that her fields have been completely, her rice paddies, I'm sorry, have been completely planted. Uh, and she, sees that this is a miracle, and she goes back to, to look at, to, to give thanks to her Jizou image. And what she sees is that the whole lower half of the image, the, the skirts and the feet of this uh, wooden image are are covered in mud from uh, having walked through the rice paddies, uh, planting her seedlings for her. So that's a very kind of, that's a story called tao Jesus. It's a very typical kind of story, though, in which uh, quite a humble person um, is helped in an extremely material way uh, hmm. by Jesus.
0: And that you know, it's interesting because that that story uh, I think touches on a recurring image that I keep seeing in all these uh, stories of this relationship, particularly between mothers and sons. Mm-hmm, yeah, um, and that there is a there is a relationship between uh, Jizo and, and China, um, but it's, it's a different the uh, different story of the uh, the the Bodhisattva who goes to hell to save his mother. And um, it's just it's just it's just interesting to me that there's this sort of recurring idea. Uh, uh or or uh, you know uh, uh, some sort of relationship there, um, right. well, And and a
1: particularity, or I don't know if it's
0: a particularity, but a difference in the in the Jizo
1: case or Dizan case from Mulian, because of, because the most famous story in in East Asian Buddhism uh, is the story of the disciple of the Buddha, the disciple of the Buddha Yayana or Mulyan, uh that that you're referring to. You know that that he goes to he goes to that hell or to the realm of hungry ghosts to save his mother he can't do it on his own but through making offerings to the community of monks uh, on a certain day in the summer when they're coming off summer retreat uh people can save their ancestors like mulian did um there's a very similar story in the past live sutra of, of Jizo or the uh, Dizang zhang jing um there's four past life stories of Jizo in there, too, in which he was a king who gives up his kingdom to become a Buddha, uh, somewhat to become a bodhisattva. I'm sorry, somewhat, uh, uh, you know, reminiscent of the story of the Buddha. The other two stories are quite similar to each other, where, where he's a, a Brahmin girl, uh, basically an aristocratic princess whose mother is bad. Um, she she uh, slanders Buddhism. She doesn't believe in karma or cause and effect. Uh, she doesn't believe in the afterlife. She's a very cynical person. She doesn't give offerings. Uh she badmouths the three jewels and so on. Um uh the, the daughter who's in one version called Bright Eyes or Guangmu uh does everything she can to convince her mother but she can't and, and and after her mother dies she's very worried about her mother's soul and she goes to a clairvoyant uh who tells her that her mother is is suffering in hell or, or in the realm of hungry goats and, and she she does everything she can to uh, you know, give away all her goods and all these things to, to 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 somehow improve her mother's fate. And then she's able to do this. And as a result of her real dedication to her mother and all the merit that she piles up to save her mother, she, in fact, becomes Jizo. So there's two past life stories in which Jizo is a daughter uh, who saves his mother. Um, so there's a kind of a, a twist there in a certain sense.
0: Hmm. Um so, so what do you? I mean, uh, what do you make? I, it's, it's always interesting to me to see Bodhisattvas in Asia that sort of uh, transcend gender binaries, so to speak, um, which is a clumsy way of saying that. But um, what do you, what do you make of that? Of the ability for these Bodhisattvas to speak not only to one particular gender or one particular community, but to sort of transcend those distinctions between male and female, or between monastic and lay communities. Yeah. Well, trans- transcending the monastic and lay is one question.
1: transcending <laughs> yeah. the, the male and female, uh, it's interesting because <clears throat> in certain ways the marking is so inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a genre of nude jizos, uh, primarily from the Kamakura period um, uh, and a little bit into the Muromachi period. Uh, these 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 images, they're they're the nude nude images in Japanese uh, Buddhist sculpture are not unheard of, but they're quite rare. And what it means for a Japanese image to be nude uh, is that the image, yes, is nude, but it has clothing on it. The clothing that living people would wear maybe the clothing's been made for made for the statue i mean particularly if it's three feet tall Um, uh, maybe it hasn't been maybe it's actually someone else some a real person's clothing especially if the statue's life size but anyway it's clothing that the statue wears so the statue is not meant to be uh uh uh, displayed uh without clothing on right Mm -hmm. um but in the case of a couple of these jizo images uh one particular i'm thinking of uh they were famous uh they wore robes but it was famous that the body underneath was a woman's body, hmm. um, and even and this is in a later period than the statue was made. Uh, uh, do I have time for another story here? I'm sorry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a statue actually uh, at a place called Enmyoji, uh in Kamakura. Uh, that's a uh, a probably a, a Marumachi period or probably third, third, uh, a 14th century uh, statue, but it, it it's it has a legend that it comes from about a hundred years earlier, I and mean, it was the, the personal statue of a woman, uh, who was the wife of the most powerful man in the land, a man named Hojo Tokiyori. Uh, Hojo Tokiyori was the regent of the shogun, uh, and I won't go into the sort of, Um, shadow politics of of Japan of that period but anyway suffice it to say he was really the power behind the throne Um, and a lot of legends grew up about him he was a Jizo worshipper so was his wife. Anyway the legend goes um, that uh, Tokiyori and his wife were playing a game called um, Sugodoku uh, which is a board game uh, somewhat like uh, Go or I don't know somewhat like Stratego It's it's an odd an odd game, so so they're playing this game, uh, and the the they're they're playing a strip version of it. So they're just playing two of them, husband and wife. But Tokiori has set the rule: okay, if I win, I'll get naked. If you win, you have to get naked. And uh, the wife loses, and she's very shy and ashamed, and she prays to Jizo that to share her from spare her from this embarrassment. Uh, Jizo appears uh, standing on the board the Sugodoku board naked uh with his ro- his monastic robes parted with a woman's body huh. and Jizo's head right and <laughs> uh and the staff and everything and Hojo Tokiyori is 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 horrified by this and chagrined and apologizes to his wife and apologizes to Jizo and they both redouble their efforts to you know to 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 be. Uh, good buddhists and so on so um this statue gets enshrined then so the statue in and if you go see there you see it today rather than having a lotus base uh has the base of a uh, sugodoku board huh. so so the deity the image stands on a sugodoku board it has uh, uh cloth robes and in edo period like 18th century let's say 19th 18th and 19th century guidebooks it says that if you require Quest and you make an extra offering that you will be able to see that the image in fact has a female body, huh. and they'll take it. They, they'll part the robes for you, and you can look at the image. So in this way, there's a there's a uh, I don't know what an interesting kind of a re-inscription of almost a kind of a peep show yeah, aspect yeah. <laughs> looking at gizo. Um, but there are gizo images that were said to be female one of the most famous jizo images ever uh is a jizo image on the tokaido called the nakano jizo um and there's a, a ditty or a poem that says this let's take the nakano jizo and marry her to the daibutsu hmm. um, because the thing about jizo is that because he is a monastic um he could as easily be a nun right right uh, and it's often remarked about certain jizo images uh that they are in fact nuns or female or something like that. Uh, the true nude GZo images usually it's more that the genitalia uh, is rendered in a very ambiguous way, as you might, uh, might imagine it would be. Um, it's not going to be showing, and it's not. Uh, it's not really the main event by any means. So, so, so it makes sense to sort of abbreviate that. But, but anyway, you see uh, the ways in which the gender neutrality of GZo and the gender switching of GZo from. Uh, female in a past life to male uh, in this present life, usually, and sometimes female, um, does serve to relativize the idea of gender, Mm -hmm. um, certainly. And and women have taken Jizo as their model. Uh, One of these new Jizos I'm talking about was commissioned by an 83-year-old nun who wanted to save her mother, uh, and she said, "You know, just like the girl Bright Eyes, who became in another life Jizo, I endeavor to make this merit and save my mother from any suffering she may be undergoing in the next life." So uh, there really was an uh, identification uh, among women, even from that period, basically from the, the, the Heian, the Kamakura period on, uh, among women with Jizo, who, who among women who knew this story of his past lives uh, as a as a Brahmin daughter, uh, so called.
0: So, so you said at the beginning that one of the reasons you were interested in, in pursuing this research was to understand the process by which jizo became associated with uh, women and children, and not just uh, and, and you know death and travelers and whatnot. And so it seems like we're sort of getting getting into that. Um, yeah. um, is 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 this gender neutrality of jizo related to that process? Do you think, or 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 what accounts for that? Hmm. I wonder. Let's see. <laughs> Certainly,
1: certainly, the idea, yeah, certainly, a a predisposition uh, for women in Japan, in particular, uh, to worship Jizo, that developed through the Kamakura period into the Muromachi period, was one of the things that laid the groundwork for a cult of safe, safe childbirth dedicated to Jizo later in. The medieval period uh, in the 16th sixteenth century moving into the 17th century. Um, Kanon or Guan Yin in, in China had largely had that role. Uh, in Japan, Jizo comes to challenge in a certain sense uh, Guan Yin or Kanon, Kanon in Japan uh, for that role. So uh, one of the uh, aspects of uh, Jizou's enculturation into Japan or assimilation into Japan is a combination uh, with of this deity with certain uh, local deities. And in Japan, this idea uh, that Buddhist deities would be associated closely with and transformed into and identified with uh, local deities uh, was a very old and important idea. And in the case of Jizo, one thing that happened Uh, during the medieval period uh, was that Buddhism began to branch out into small towns and villages and when Buddhism began to branch out into small towns and villages and maybe just one priest living in an old battered Jizo hall in in a village um, one thing that happened besides increasing uh, burial of the dead in a Buddhist style was an overlay of Buddhist meaning on local Religious landscape, so in many villages throughout Japan, particularly in the central uh, and and eastern areas of Japan uh, during the medieval period uh and and afterwards, the boundaries of the village would often be marked by large uh stone uh not that large but you know through two three four foot stone uh, what pillars or obelisks or or, or uh mounds. Um and these were often phallic in shape. So they're the these phallic stones that both guard the the boundaries, uh, a kind of a universal, not universal, but a widespread East Asian uh, belief, common in Korea, Japan, uh China to name you know three modern geopolitical units, mm-hmm. but widespread uh, throughout East Asia and Southeast Asia is so the idea um uh that 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 the display of sec- and it's it's common in europe too that the display of sexuality is a prophylactic against uh danger or any kind of spiritual attack so the displaying of genitals is a way of uh of keeping uh evil influences away from the edge of the village um so there are these phallic stones uh and they they guarantee fertility uh and they all so, uh, mark the boundaries of the village, and like I said, keep out epidemics and other diseases. These are called the uh, Dosojin. Hmm. And Jizo really becomes associated with these. And uh, if you will, many of these, and this is not as direct a, a, a process as I just try to describe it right now, but uh, a lot of these phallic images quite quickly, uh, with a few slight modifications, become Jizo images. <laughs> so, there's a way in which these old stones uh, that represent the boundary, the limen, the, the kind of separation between the living and the dead too um, are, are combined or transformed into uh, a Buddhist deity. And one of the reasons this happens is because of the common medium uh, of stone. Uh, I
0: so I want to transition to a different kind of statue though, mm-hmm. if that's okay. <laughs> um, you open the second chapter of the book with um, uh a story about a different kind of Jesus statue It's actually made of wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the story of this statue in and of itself and, and the way that you described um, a fellow, um, Horiguchi Sozan, who acquired the statue, was just sort of interesting. Um, and I think that it speaks to... Um, the way these images were used, and this 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 chapter two is about the monastic devotion to Jizo. So, um, I'm wondering if you could just uh, let our listeners know about this uh, this particular image, um, yeah. and and talk about how Jizo was uh, used in a, in a monastic uh, setting as well.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. This this object that you're talking about is just uh, uh, just in a, a breathtaking, incredible, like jewel like uh, uh little statue. Um that I had seen photographs of uh and 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 like the image I was talking about just before, this nude uh, Kamakura period image uh this these two images actually are very similar they were probably made by the same sculpture they were made around the same time uh they're very very similar as far as Jizo images uh one thing that's amazing about both images is they have all this stuff inside so so that's a shocking thing uh, that was discovered uh uh actually long before I was born, uh, but, but it was shocking when it was discovered because it was uh, some, what, 700 years or so uh, after uh, the creation of these two images. So the image that, that, that you're mentioning uh, is an image that I call in the book the Rockefeller Gizo because uh, it's now held in the John D. Rockefeller III collection in the Asia Society in New York City. Uh, and it's eminent, it's an image um, uh, that I've, I've seen on display a, a couple of times, and it is uh, uh, like the Dankoji Jizo, the nude Jizo that I talked about uh, just before. Uh, it's quite small. Uh, it's a little less than three feet tall. Um, And it is rendered in beautiful, uh, immaculate detail. And unlike a lot of statues that we have from the Kamakura period, uh, it retains quite a bit of its gold leaf uh, filigree uh, and also some color uh, in the robes. So when we think of Japanese Buddhist sculpture, we think of very dark black images with little spots of color here and there. Um, it's hard for us to remember that these images were brightly painted. Uh, even the faces were painted white or gold or whatever, and the hands and so on. Each thing was painted a different color. It's very hard for us to remember this, but seeing this image, you see, uh, it's not gaudy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but there's enough remaining there that you see, uh, some of this real beauty coming through anyway. So, um, uh, it is monastic devotion. It's also aristocratic devotion. So these monastics that we're talking about in both of these projects, the the, the new jizo project and the and the Rockefeller Jizo project, uh, were from a fairly small community of uh, Fujiwara family members, uh, the members of the most powerful family in Japan at the time, uh, advisors and regents to the to the emperor, um, and many of those uh, family, Members became the most important and powerful clerics in the land. So, their family shrine uh, was is a, a shrine called the Kasuga Shrine in Nara, and through the system that I was talking about uh, in more general terms before of making Buddhist deities into Japanese ones, uh, something called Honji Suijaku or or the trace. Uh, the the original ground and trace manifestations, uh, in in the interest of saying, look, our Japanese gods, our ancestors, in the case of Fujiwara family, have Buddhist equivalents. Uh, They matched the four, uh, later five, uh, um, Kasuga gods to Buddhist deities. Anyway, the third Kasuga Kasuga deity, uh, Ame no Koyane, uh, the most important ancestral Fujiwara god, the one who's called the Kasuga deity, Becomes identified with Jizo. So, in that way, Jizo becomes an important stand in for the Shinto gods. And what we see, uh, both in the case of the nude Jizo and in the, that I won't go into too deeply, and in this Rockefeller Jizo, which is connected to four other images. that 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 I don't talk about much in the book, but but is a set with four other images, uh, or or kind of hypothesized images. Two or three of them would be lost, but uh, we know they must have been there um, to represent the whole shrine uh, in Buddhist terms. So within the body of the new jizo, there's other small statues and and Buddhist relics and things like that to represent four different Buddhist deities within the one body. Uh, in the case of the 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 uh, Rockefeller jizo, when when uh, the person who bought it, it was it's an interesting image because it was something that uh, had been remarked upon by Japanese, I'll call them uh, sort of governmental master curators in a certain sense during Japan's uh, early uh, kind of imperial colonial period as something that should be shown uh, along with great other works of Japanese art to foreign countries. And it was sent to the, uh, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, what's it called? The... Pa- Um, the uh, the 1904 St. Louis. Uh, I want to say it's Pan American. I don't think it is. uh,
0: World exhibition or World Fair or something.
1: It was a World Fair, and it it had its own name. It may have been, may have been Pan American, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so it went to the 19 uh, in 1904 exposition in in St. Louis, uh, and it's it's said that that Ernst Fennellosa saw it there. I'm not sure if that's true or not. The great art historian, but anyway, uh. Uh, it was bought in Japan by a, a, a man from the, uh, 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 good family. Uh, and he, uh, he worked, he wrote a book about it and he took wonderful photographs of it, uh, in, uh, uh, at the time that, that, that he, that he had bought it. Basically, he, he took a flashlight and he looked and he could see it was written on inside the statue. Around this time in Japan, statues began to be made, made of separate pieces of wood rather than one piece of wood. Uh, is a kind of a technological innovation. And, and one thing as allowed sculptors to do, the most important thing I would say, uh, is to put in eyes carved of rock crystal. There were specialists who just made these rock crystal eyes. Uh, the, the lids were very, very almost shut on these images. But when you look at these images, particularly if you're in the proper position of sort of kneeling before the image in the position of a supplicant, you look up at this image and the eyes are, are very striking because they show through the, the half lidded gaze of the wood. Uh, and they look like real eyes. So through this technology, the eyes could be put in. But also, a lot of empty space was created inside the statues. So that's why the new Jizo is able to have texts explaining who we, this is who we are, this is why we did this. Uh, these are what these images mean. And in the case of the Rockefeller Jizo, what was done was the image was written inside uh on, directly on the wood in ink uh, with a brush. And there's a Sanskrit letter that represents Jizo. So the Sanskrit letter is written a thousand times inside the image, and then other prayers are inscribed there by different people. Uh, in the case of a similar image of the, of the Bodhisattva Manjushri, uh, who's the, the, de- the kind of corresponding deity of another Kasuga shrine, the, the Wakamiya of Kasuga, um, the, 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 the letter of Manjushri is written all over the inside of this image. So, so these were part of a set. Where the Buddhist deities represent the Shinto deities, so this was a monastic use that, and a kind of an aristocratic family use, if you will, uh, kind of very local and specific use. That uh, while it was continued to be uh, very much practiced in that area, uh, once the Jizo cult spread to a larger area, pretty much fell by the wayside. I would say the close the close association between uh, Jizo and the Kasuga deity once once the cult of jizo leaves the yamato area uh it's not made uh uh it's not as a, a uh a connection that's made very strongly uh anymore outside that area
0: so so uh y- your book is obviously about the medieval period um in Japan but uh, you know we started talking about your interest in this uh originally in and going to Japan and seeing jizo everywhere so um just to sort of uh go off a little bit from the book um mm-hmm. yeah. and 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 discuss the ways in which jizo remains relevant in japan uh today if you can uh, yeah. speak to that i i know that um you know there's there's clearly a connection between jizo and uh abortion and stillbirth um but uh, my own experience is japan you know jizo is is very obvious
1: <laughs> yeah Right. Yeah, yeah, Jizo, you cannot miss Jizo, because everywhere you go there's Jizo, I mean, and uh, whatever, Uh, uh, what is it? Um, uh, uh, Ketai, cell phone uh, charms, right? (laughs) Jizo is very uh, widely represented. Uh, Often, you know, any kind of Kozo, any kind of picture of a young monk or a small monk, right, a novice monk, uh, is almost a stand-in for Jizo. So in this way, there's a lot of doppelgangers for Jizo, and another thing that happens uh, is that... In Japan, this is, and this is not something that's true in, in China or Korea, uh, a lot of deities, uh, images of deities that are not Jizo become called Jizo, come to be called this and that Jizo. So the folklorist Yanagida Kunio uh, uh, had an article called Jizo no Myoji, which I guess in, in English would be Jizo's last name, something like that. <laughs> So, it's the tooth, or, or, uh, anyway, yeah, whatever. Jizo's family name, let's call it, because family names come first in East Asia. But, uh, the tooth pulling Jizo, you know, the thorn pulling Jizo, the sweet potato Jizo, the tied up Jizo, the, 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 um, uh, boat Jizo, you know, the dawn Jizo. So every different, the noodle Jizo, the Jizo that sends to the mountains, all these different kinds of names for Jizo, Yanagita Kunio said, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a way that, that this deity, uh, becomes instantiated in very local places and, uh, in a very, uh, for, 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 for Yanagira anyway, a particularly Japanese way. Uh, becomes a deity of the local place. Even though his name is Jizo, he's not just any Jizo. He's the Jizo of this place. And this is something that's really borne out. at this place and this function, right? This is something that's really borne out when we look at a prayer of a Nara period nun, um, or not Nara period, I'm sorry, uh, Kama Kura, Kura of a Kamakura of record of a nun from the town of Nara uh, who says, uh, you know, I won't pray at the Fukuchi-in Jizo uh, I won't pray at the Chisoku in Jizo. And she goes through a list of about six or seven Jizo that were very famous in Nara. And she says, you know, I'm only going to pray at, uh, you know, this, this particular Jizo temple, the temple of the Yata Jizo, because that's my deity. Right? So the idea that, that you don't just go to any Jizo image, especially if you're in a, a metropolitan area like that, you know, there's one that you pick. Um, so there's ways in which Jizo, uh, is very much specific each Gzo image, but then there's other ways in which there's a generalization. Like I was going to say before, so uh, at a friend's um, uh, uh, Jodo, or it's not Jodo, yeah, Jodo Shu temple in um, uh, Odawara, for instance, there is an, an Amida image. I think a 15th century Amida image that had been in a fire, so the whole image is very very black. Uh, but it has teeth that are made of bone or something like that, so they show up extremely white. Uh, they were they were saved, uh, they were cleaned, and it's very very white. So the image is famous for uh, easing the pain of children in t- in in, uh, in teething. Hmm. So it's called the habuki. Uh, it's originally called hab- habuki midason, right? The 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 teething amida uh, image, um, but. Everyone calls it the Habuki Jizosan. So if you look at the image, it's clearly an Amida image. It has a, a curly hair, it has an ushnisha. it has hands are in a Bayamudra and so on. So it's clearly a, an Amida image. There's no mistaking it. And yet it's called Habuki Jizosan because it has this um, uh, healing property. Uh, so it's much more familiar as a jizo. Another place is Togenuki Jizo in, in, in Tokyo, a very famous, uh, site for healing. Uh, the main image there, which is a secret image, uh, but, but people swallow actually, uh, small papers, uh, pieces, uh, printed to look like the main image, but you don't see the main image. But another thing people do there, besides swallow the pieces of paper with jizo on them, um, is to take a scrub brush and scrub, uh, a small wooden statue. Uh, of Guan Yin. And people line up to do this uh, and, and they scrub the part of their body. There's water there. They scrub the part of their body that's ailing them and so on. But people also call this small stone image, which is a Guanyin image. It's basically, it's very hard to read what it is because it's so scrubbed away, but it is a Guanyin image, image, but people call it the Jizo image. Uh, and then the last example that I'll give is that a lot of temples that you go to uh, especially Zen temples in Kyoto, but other places too. There'll be an area of the temple, uh, called Sentai Jizo. A thousand Jizos. And you go to this area, and what you see there is stacks and stacks and rows and rows of old, worn, broken graves. Uh, some of them have Jizo on them. Some of them have the two Buddhas of the, uh, of the Lotus Sutra next to each other, um, some of them have Guanyin and so on. Some of them have uh, just writing. Some of them you can't read at all. But they're wrapped in these old graves uh, are wrapped in uh, cloth, often red cloths or other kind of cloths as a kind of a bib or an apron, um, and stacked there. And they're called a thousand jizos. So if people are doing construction, say, and old graves come up out of the ground, they will bring these graves to a temple and the temple will put them with their thousand jizos. If a temple, uh, has a grave that has been neglected for generation after generation, the family has died out. They're not taking care of the grave anymore. And it's becoming broken and worn. They will also move, uh, the grave to a place like this. Uh, so there's a way in which the collective dead, the anonymous dead also, uh, become jizo, uh, in that sense.
0: Well, you know, I, uh, I could, I, I could hear these stories all day. <laughs> Just the ubiquity, like I said before, of Jizo across Japan is, um, is, is really fascinating. I really appreciate, um, all of the hard work that you put into this, uh, study, despite what, what your, uh, your professor said when you were in grad school and you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> to study this huge topic um, but we've 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 uh we're, we're nearing the end and i want to okay. make sure that we uh ask our, our traditional final question which is um surely you must be working on something equally fascinating so um what uh can we expect from you in the future oh
1: yes um it's not an unrelated topic uh surprisingly enough uh, when you hear what it is it doesn't sound too close but i'm working on. Uh, the uh, theory and, and iconography, material culture and spread of a particular kind of a gravestone in Japan hmm. that is really the, I would say, by this point or by from the, mid, from the late medieval, really from the, early, from the early modern period on, the Edo period on, becomes the standard sort of representation of a grave, uh, which is called the godin noto, which means something like the uh, stupa or pagoda, of five elements, hmm. there's five elements in Chinese medicine. Um, the five phases. Uh, uh, this is not those five elements. It's the Indian five elements. Anyway, it's a it's a quite a ge- geometric. Uh, looking unmistakable, unmistakable kind of gravestone that has a cube at the bottom and then a, a sphere and a pyramid and a hemisphere uh, topped by a sort of a jewel or a jujube shape. Um, anyway, this kind of a grave uh, is something that isn't seen outside of Japan uh, and is developed in Japan uh, from the end of the 12th century on. Uh, and then from the fifteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century or so becomes more and more popular uh and, and over time becomes uh really the standard kind of grave. So I'm I'm researching the uh monastic networks that went into that and also the artisanal networks uh that went into the creation of that. Uh, it's actually the same people, uh and we didn't talk about this, but it's the same people who in the book uh head east in Japan and make begin making um uh carvings of Jizo. Uh, as they did in the Yamato area, uh, they're also making these Gori no to, the first sort of monumental ones. Um, so uh, there's clearly a, a relationship there between the uh, faith communities in Japan, especially in the, in the Nara area, the Yamato area, uh, that, that, uh, that, that both the Gori no to and Jizo in Japan, uh, in my estimation, uh, really originate in, uh, that, that, that makes the two books uh, come together. So that's the next project.
0: Great, looking forward to looking forward to it. <laughs> we'll to talk in a couple of decades. <laughs> Hopefully, it won't take you as long. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, see. well uh, thanks again for uh, speaking with us today, and I'll, um, I'll I'll let you get back to to your hard work.
1: Okay, thanks, Scott.
0: Take care. You've been listening to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today, we've been interviewing Hank Glassman, author of The Face of Jizo: Image and Cult in Medieval Japanese Buddhism.